This is Merseyside pensioner Phil Maxwell saying, welcome to the Merseyside Pensioners Association podcast extra. Before lockdown, we used to have some extraordinary speakers at our meetings, covering subjects relating to campaigns, politics, history and culture. A number of listeners are particularly interested in hearing the oral history of our members. So our MPA Podcast Extra is a new occasional series that will run alongside our regular podcasts. Today we're going to hear from Grace Oliver, the MPA's extraordinary 72-year-old transgender secretary. We're also going to hear from author and writer Alan Gibbons, who has spoken at our meetings a number of times. But first, here's Grace. I asked her how she thought other members of the MPA viewed her. Okay, as Secretary of MPA, most people just see me as a strange transgender woman, come from the south of England, and maybe a bit suspect. I'd like to introduce myself and tell you my political story and end up with my vision for MPA in the light of the COVID crisis. So first of all, let's uh, begin. First big event was I stood as Labour candidate at my school's mock election in 1964 and like Harold Wilson, won a landslide victory. To do it, I learned the Labour Party manifesto off by heart and to this day still think it excellent. Nationalising the ports and nationalising the banks. When I went to Liverpool University from Croydon, the first society I joined was the Tolstoy and Anarchist Society, Community Service and the Royal Naval Reserve. I wanted to resolve the tension in me between pacifism and state power. The most political of these turned out to be community service. I went Thursday nights to a youth club in Toxteth. I came from a working class school neighbourhood in Croydon. I'd never seen such absolute poverty, slum dwellings as those in Liverpool 8 in those days. It radicalised me. And discussing it with some friends at the Everyman Theatre Bistro back then, I declared myself a revolutionary socialist. Some years later, I went to a student conference in Chalk Farm in London where I heard Don Kelder Camera, who made a speech that shaped the rest of my life. Don't go to the third world to make the world a better place. Go instead into the belly of the beast in Britain or USA and fight capitalism there. Well, so I went to the USA. My parents, as it happened, lived in Louisville, Kentucky. Began by being active in the Free Angela Davis movement that then changed its name to the National Alliance Against Racial and Political Repression. Then in 1983, I got a job in Hong Kong for a while and was active in the most politically effective trade union, an independent trade union that effectively embarrassed the colonial British government into action by bringing TV cameras into workplaces to show the scandalous conditions of workers. Some years later, I was unemployed and homeless. The Communist Party in New Haven, Connecticut, where I was living, gave me a place to live. I joined the CPUSA in the, on the very day the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989. I was then a biology and chemistry teacher for a time, and I went in 2001 to Texas with Charlotte. Now I was teaching philosophy classes at the University of Texas from a Marxist perspective. When I retired, I returned to England 
and bought a home off Scotty Road, where I live now, and all importantly, joined the MPA in 2015. Charlotte and I heard Jeremy Corbyn speak at the Lowry Theatre in Salford just before he was leader of the Labour Party. We found him not only inspirational, but he roused in us the hope for a day and time when we could have a socialist government in Britain. The loss of the Labour Party in the last election absolutely devastated me. Everything I'd done politically in my life, it seemed to me, had been for nothing. The last chance for the NHS to be brought back from being a privatised business was gone. And then came COVID-19 crisis. I can't put my finger on it, but Paul Bayes, Bishop of Liverpool, put it rather succinctly. He called it a resurrection of community, the ghost of Thatcherism at last exorcised. The working class now seem to be the heroes, the essential people in society, and the investor capitalists as the bloodsuckers and parasites of society. So now I find myself recovering from the devastation of the election, and I sense a new political landscape emerging in this time of lockdown. And I want to finish uh, reading an interesting paragraph I read couple of days ago from the British Road of Socialism because it's as if it's been written specifically for the MPA. And here it goes. Millions of older people face a life of poverty and isolation as social care has been cut back and privatised and the age of pension eligibility raised. Working women in particular have suffered additional injustices and there's been a welcome increase in scale and militancy of pensioners' movement. But the fight for living pension and support for decent public and social services is not the responsibility of pensioners alone. All trade unions have to understand this is a fight for their members' future. Although the pensioners' movements received increased backing from unions, the labour movement needs to help turn this into a truly mass, broad-based and militant campaign. While the fight must continue to occupational company and second state pensions properly funded in part by employers, the provision of a decent basic state pension is essential to guarantee a financially secure retirement. It's essential to draw upon the experience and loyalty of trade unions to reach retirement. Union structures should be established which encourage them to remain active. Best mechanism varies from union to union. Community-based branches and retired members section. As secretary of the MPA, that's my vision for, I and mean, that's, that's the context in which I see ourselves campaigning now. And and it's strange, it's in this time of lockdown, <laughs> when it's been really miserable, to have suddenly found, oh my God, we've got a new political landscape, and there's 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 maybe real hope out there again. Now I'm not when I call myself Secretary of MPA, you have to know that actually. There's a lot of people. One of the good things about MPA now is loads of people coming in to fill the huge shoes left by Mari when she ceased being secretary. So I do my little job, basically, of writing to speakers, writing them, and things to help Julie on the front to keep things going there. But, um, yeah, this is exciting times, I think, for MPA, and I'm enjoying the uh, WhatsApp group. And um, forwards and onwards to the revolution. Grace Oliver there looking forward to the revolution and also talking about Mary Harrison, 
who was the MPA secretary for many years, and then followed by Sue Bennett. Sue's not been well recently, so if you're listening, Sue, we all wish you a speedy recovery. You can listen to all of the Merseyside Pensioners podcasts by going to the Merseyside Pensioners YouTube channel. There's also some films you can watch featuring the campaigning work of the MPA. You can hear us each week on Liverpool Community Radio FM 106.7. You can also find us online on Spotify and Anchor FM. Remember, if you have something to say, then contact me by email at maxwellphotouk at yahoo.co.uk. Listener Rob Holt has sent me an email about COVID-19 and statues. He writes... I'm sure most people would have severe difficulty understanding that the voracious COVID-19, which has infected 300,000 people and murdered well over 44,000 of us, is itself not alive. So what is this thing that operates in that space between life and death, between being and not being, in the twilight zone between sunup and sundown? Scientists used to think a virus was a poison, but then they thought it was a life form similar to bacteria. But now, they say, whilst they do have genetic material, they cannot reproduce on their own, but force us and our bodies to reproduce them, rather like a parasite. And this made me think of other dark parasitic creatures, such as Edward Colston, who sold 84,000 human beings into slavery, of whom over 19,000 died. This led our great ruling class, as Edward Colston was definitely one of theirs, in their infinite wisdom to erect statues and name towers, schools, hills, pubs, streets and roads after him. And who should come to Colston's aid? None other than Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer, who said it was completely wrong for the protesters to tear down the statue. Next, we ought to think about putting up a statue to an atom bomb, or a warmonger like Tony Blair. Or why not one for Covid-19 itself? Kind regards, Mark Holt. Thanks for that, Mark. I always look forward to your emails. Stay with us because we will be hearing shortly from campaigning activist and friend of Merseyside pensioners, Alan Gibbons. But first, a short musical break courtesy of our resident musician, pensioner Phil Newton and his violin. I think this is called the Oyster Girl. Some kind of Morris dance, I think. Merseyside pensioner Phil Newton playing his violin there in his back garden in Knowsley. 
I first got to know Alan Gibbons when I was making the film Austerity Fight in 2017 with Haswan Hashim, who is the producer on this podcast. Alan is a multi-award winning children's author who is passionate about the need for libraries. And when I interviewed him for the film, I asked him why we needed to fight to keep libraries open. Right, I think libraries, number one, is one of the great cultural centres. Number two, it is actually the last stage of what made this country civilised after the Second World War. When we had things like the National Health Service in the 1940s, the welfare state, in 1964 the foundation of the Public Library Service was probably the last stage of that great social reform in the mid-20th century. And that it's now under attack means educational opportunities are under attack, the possibilities of a community hub are under attack. The possibilities of any sort of kind of, I don't know, social flexibility in which people move from less well-off backgrounds into creative possibilities for the future are harmed. In other words, it's not just about books. It is about social possibilities. It is about people not living for Monday to Friday, but people living for a long weekend. For me, the long weekend is summed up by the women in Patterson, New Jersey, who went out on strike in 1911. And their slogan was, we don't just want bread, we want roses too. And that, to me, is what library is about. I was a working class kid who used to go into crew library. And I just saw possibilities on those shelves. And I want a new generation to see possibilities. And those kids are going to schools that are little more than exam factories now. Very often the school library is under pressure or closed. The only place some of those kids will get any sort of idea of changing their lives is in a local geographical public library. The Tories wouldn't see themselves as cutting uh, culture and libraries. Most of them are actually very cultured people, and I think that is the point. They have access, naturally, through their own lives to culture. Most of them will have houses that are stuffed with books and records. Their kids can go into internships or get the bank of mum and dad to pay for them to go into the arts, culture, business. It is for working class and lower middle class people who don't have those kind of support mechanisms from their parents who need it to be publicly funded to mean that they can actually get access to the arts, to culture, to literature. And increasingly, that is being undermined. The social mobility, I think, will stutter and go into reverse over the next few years. And that is where libraries fit in. That is where various promotions of film and music in communities come in. The working class and lower middle class kids whose parents have got no disposable income to launch them into those careers, they will be discriminated against because the people who come from much better socioeconomic backgrounds, they have already got those positions. They're pulling up the ladder, they're closing the doors. That was Alan speaking in 2017. Earlier this week, I caught up again with Alan because I knew he was involved in the latest Black Lives Matter demonstration in Liverpool. So I asked him, why was he on the demo? Well, the first thing, I've been an anti-racist campaigner all my life. If, if he said, why did I become a socialist? It was things like the revolution will not be televised and things like Abraham Martin and John and change is going to come. That's the age I am. Um, I, 
got involved in the early anti-Nazi league, went on, uh, along a lot of the demonstrations against, you know, the police attacks and all the rest of it. And when this event with George Floyd occurred, this, this murder, then it was, it was simple for me. I stood by the predominantly young people and the diversity of the demonstration is fantastic. It's liberation politics on the street. That's what uh, attracted me. And uh, I've been on two of the big demonstrations now and it was phenomenal. Um, and it's, it, it basically it's two things for me. Number one is justice for that man in Minneapolis in America. But number two, it's recognizing the institutional racism in our society. Something that, you know, Mark the McPherson reports that they admitted the deaths of people like Anthony Walker and uh, Stephen Lawrence. And this is, it's a tipping point. It feels different. When I marched after the Liverpool 8 riots with what was then a diverse march, but the predominantly white shoppers when we arrived in Liverpool city centre were scowling at us 40 years ago. This time it was so different. I mean, the noise of the horns welcoming us to the city centre was deafening. And that was predominantly white drivers. And it was the same at the first one, when we knelt for eight and a half minutes, nearly nine minutes, which kind of did my knees, I'll tell you. But, you know, it's solidarity. You've got to do it. And um, when we arrived to the sound of Katumba yesterday, ah, oh, just awesome. And just hearing those speakers and seeing that vibrant audience, I mean, it just felt like change is going to come at last. I really hope it is. Alan, you are very active in the Labour Party, and I noticed that you are standing as a candidate for forward momentum. Why did you decide to do that? Like a lot of people, I had almost given up on momentum. Momentum's the force most associated with the Corbyn movement a vital engine of the heroic days when the party was quadrupling in size a new political generation was getting involved. But I mean, it ran into sand before long, you know, all the decisions were being centralized around a clique uh, in London that was manipulating, you know, decisions that wasn't transparent. And that's got to change, you know? So essentially, I thought, when you look at what happened in West Derby, when a local popular working class socialist was chosen, and then sections of momentum decided to have their own candidate against the wishes of local activists, it was time to make a stand. And what was great for me was that um, the local, the, the people who I met, uh, who were putting together the forward momentum campaign, Number one, were young, fresh ideas. But number two, they wanted to do it in a way that the Momentum leadership had not been doing it. We had this process of uh, democratic primaries. And at first, I just thought, this is a hell of a lot of work. But when I saw it in action, fantastic. Four and a half thousand people signing up, 2,000 people almost voting in the process, 30 local meetings. What it was doing was showing on the ground what, the what a national momentum that was really member-led and member-owned could be like. And what's our aim for this? Our aim for this is, is, an, is several things. 
Number one is to make sure that we're central to communities and workplaces. Number two is to make sure that the, lo the local branches are strong, not in the dark, not having their own data, that those branches politically educate in action their young activists to turn canvassers into trade union activists that help to rebuild the trade unions. I mean, I can remember the trade unions having what, 11, 12 million members when I was a shop student in the 70s. That got reduced to about 6 million. And there's whole new sectors like, you know, the precarious workers, the call centre workers that desperately need stronger organisation. Momentum can be part of that change. It's got, and it can, it can finish the Corbyn project by democratising the Labour Party, creating a truly socialist Labour Party, not a, a, a Labour Party with some socialists in it. And the way forward for that is Momentum bears responsibility for the disaster uh, last year when three right-wingers got in, and that can't happen again. So we've got to make sure that all the groups on the left, and Momentum should be involved in this, not an obstacle to it, come together, have a democratic process, similar to our primaries, I would have thought. I mean, I don't know the nuts and bolts of what we'll decide, but a democratic process that chooses the balance of that slate, one slate to, to fight for socialism. None of this prevarication, no divisions, no backroom deals, no bureaucratic behind the scenes manipulation, open democratic grassroots socialism. Open democratic grassroots socialism there from Alan Gibbons. Do you share Alan's vision or would you prefer a party that is simply a fan club for self-serving politicians? Well, let us know what you think. Watch out for podcast number 10, where we will be talking to our NHS senior nurse practitioner who thinks that the ruling class has been practising social distancing for centuries. We'll be examining how generations have united against racism and we'll have an exclusive interview with David White and Vicky Cooper on why they think the government should be held to account for crimes against humanity. This is Merseyside pensioner Phil Maxwell saying until next time, solidarity, stay safe. And here is that incredible 18th century rebel, J.S. Spark.